Paul's writing to the Colossian church, and we're taking our time going through, and today we're into verses 24 and 29 in the first chapter. And here, let's read it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, so... Verse 23, Paul closes that little section by referring to himself as a minister of the gospel. And that word for minister in the Greek is the word deacon. So he literally says he's a deacon of the gospel. And he's not, of course, saying he's a deacon as an, an official capacity in the church. What he is saying is that the thing that has been given to him from God, his calling, is such that he is a, like a deacon is to the church. He is a steward and an administrator of the gospel to the world. So just as deacons in Acts 6 are there to administer care to the body and to care for the church, to manage its functions and so on, so Paul says his job with the gospel is to administer it, to see where it is needed and dispense it as needed and to preserve it and care for it as well. So here then, in this passage, he launches into a description of that calling, of that ministry, who he is and what he is called to do in Christ. And it's a little strange, right, because if you know Paul's letters, he generally only speaks about himself when he's defending himself. Usually it's because, I'm not sure if you're aware, Paul wasn't a very likable character in a lot of places. He, he says that in his letters. People, everywhere he went, people just didn't like him. They didn't like his attitude sometimes. They didn't like what he was saying. And so usually when he starts speaking about himself, he's trying to say, hey, they've called me a fraud, they've called me self-seeking, but here's the evidence contrary to that. Because he's trying to make sure that people don't reject his message, the gospel, because of him. So in this passage, is he doing that? Well, you can talk about that in your community groups. But I don't think so. Because there's no evidence in the book of Colossians, like there is in Galatians, for instance, that he is saying, uh, like in Galatians he says, he, he singles out a group that have, have, have slandered him. This circumcision group, he calls them. In Colossians, there's no hint. He doesn't mention somebody else. So if that's the case and he's not defending himself, well, what is he doing here by talking about himself? And I think the great irony is, in speaking about himself, he's actually encouraging the Colossian church and you and I by showing you how God loves you. Because the way God loves you and I is very practical. Yes, of course, there's the cross, and we'll talk about that, and that's a key part of what we're going to talk about. But he loves you so practically that he loves you through people like Paul, through pastors, through preachers, and through much more. And so we're going to look at this question, how does God love us? And we see a number of things, but we're going to highlight three. Um, He loves us by giving us a message, messengers, and might or power. Okay, And we'll talk about all three of those. So first is message. Now, Paul uses this language of mystery. right? He speaks about the mystery of the gospel. And um, there's no sense in beating around the bush. He literally means the gospel. In Ephesians 6, 19, he makes it, he literally says that um, the mystery of the gospel. So when Paul speaks about mystery, uh, one of the things, why is he doing it? Why is he speaking and using this language of mystery? 
because it's not really a mystery, but here's maybe a hint. In the early church, we know there were these things called mystery religions. The Gnostics, if you've attended the classes, you know what I'm talking about. But there are these religions, and they still exist today. And these religions were uh, appealing, and they thrived on offering you insider information. You know, you can be part of the in-group, because the world, you know, it's a mystery to understand the things of God and to understand the world and suffering. And so, but not everybody can get it, because some people are stupid. Some people are so clouded by the things of this world and their physical bodies that they can't quite get this mystery. And so, why don't you come in, pay us a lot of money, and we'll give you the key to this mystery. And this happens a lot. A lot of churches today, a lot of, unfortunately, Christian churches, but many religions still thrive on this idea of exclusivity. And ironically, the church has often been called an exclusive body. But the reason Paul speaks about it as a mystery, and you're going to see how blatantly he says it, is not because it is any longer a mystery, but because it's actually radically inclusive, because it's been blown up in the sense that this mystery, once mysterious, has now been made very clear to the whole world. And so he uses, but let's look at that. How he does it is interesting. In Romans 16, at the very end of that book, of his letter, here's what he says. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And it's wonderful. I highlighted spots there because what Paul, think about this. Paul is saying there was this book, the Bible, the Old Testament. And in these prophetic writings, in the prophets and so on, there was within it hints, uh, symbols, images, typo, typo, typology, uh, all these different things in there that hinted at a Messiah coming, that hinted at God coming to rescue the world from its disastrous mess. However, says Paul, those writings, all they could do for you was to create mystery because not one human being prior to Christ coming and reveal, God revealing Christ could have anticipated Christ. They could have hints that there was a Messiah coming, but you realize when Christ comes, everybody seems baffled at the kind of Christ he is. And that's because what Paul's saying is it was held secret. It was there. And it was just enough information to create mystery and to cause longing in the hearts of Israel to say, who is this God who's coming? What's he going to do? There's a snippet here that says he's going to suffer. A snippet here that says he's not going to suffer and triumph. A snippet here that says he's going to be a man. A snippet here that says God himself is going to come. It's a mystery. And then Paul says, but that mystery has now been made known in Christ. It's been made known to everyone, and it's being made known through Paul and through Christians and so on. And so this mystery, says Paul, is contrary to these mystery religions that offer you something at a price, and they thrive on you being better than the other person. See, that's the challenge. You want to achieve nirvana, you've got to be wise, you've got to come to a certain stage of enlightenment in yourself, and when you do, you're up here, and the peons below you are down here right? Because they, they haven't figured it out yet. They're still shackled by the lies of this world. Christianity comes and says, you're all shackled by the lies of this world, and all of you are free to accept it, if you will. Of course, most won't, and we see that. But Paul's radical in saying this, and it gets even more narrow. So now if we turn to Colossians, he's, he, he narrows in, and he's talking when he says, what is this mystery? He identifies it plainly. But he, he gets narrower, and he speaks about one aspect of it. And he says this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he says this mystery that has been revealed now in Christ is, yes, of course, the gospel, that you are a sinner, and Christ has come to live the life he, you couldn't, to die the death you couldn't, 
so that he would take your punishment so you could get his reward. That's all there. But he says the mystery he wants to highlight here for the Colossians is the mystery is Christ is in you, and that is your only hope of glory. Christ is in you. And we think of that as geographical, right? Like he was out there, and now he's in here. Right? When you become a Christian, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. There's no need for a second blessing, right? You're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. That's pretty simple biblical theology. And when he speaks this way, why is, like, why is he talking in this way? We think about it as being geographical, like God was out there, and now he's come nearer to us, which of course is true. But don't think of it geographically. For the purposes of this, think about it as an identification issue. On the cross, what Christ does is he comes and says, I am not a sinner. I do not participate in their sin. However, I will identify with them so completely that I am willing to even die for their sin and to be mistaken as a sinner on their behalf. So he identifies with us. That's what the cross is doing. We then, in turn, as Christians, say, Amen, he is our Savior, he is our righteousness, and we identify with him. And he then comes in and dwells in us. Now, here's the incredible thing. Think of your life as a Christian as though you now co-own a car with Jesus. And everywhere you go, he goes. Now, the good news is, he's there with you everywhere. The bad news is, he's there with you everywhere. So, imagine if literally you were in a car and Jesus is always sitting shotgun with you, right? Is that bad to say shotgun? No, I don't know. Sitting beside you. And, and as you're driving, would you drive to your lover's house with Jesus sitting there? No, but that's only because you feel embarrassed, not because you don't want to, right? That's the sinner. We wouldn't implicate Jesus in that, but that's exactly what happens. You wouldn't gossip, you wouldn't slander people if you knew Christ is literally right there, which of course he is, he's in you. And so what happens when you do drive to the adulterer's house, when you do look at the pornography, because he is in you as a Christian, like it or not, the sin in you is trying to implicate God in your sin. You're trying to make Christ a sinner. This is what we do. And so look at this though. He comes into your heart and he will not abandon you even when you sin if you are a Christian, which means he comes. He doesn't participate in your sin, but he witnesses it all. And he has to observe it. A holy God has to watch you once again, like Hosea says, go into the lover's room and he listens and watches you cheat on him while he is there. And he doesn't run. He stays even. He continues, not just on the cross, he continues to identify with you in your sin. He won't abandon you even now in your sin. And this is just, just miraculous, right? That he will not and refuses to abandon you on the, uh, even now. He is close enough to even be mocked. See, when you fall and you sin as a pastor's sin and fall, what happens is the world then mocks God, right? They don't just mock the pastor or, the, or you. They then say, this, see, this is your God. This is it. And now this holy, good, and righteous God has to sit in your heart and take the beating that you deserve again. And so this is the hope of, and see, this is why, why is that the hope of the hope of glory? Because if he didn't abandon you on the cross and still will not abandon you in your sin, he is your only hope of glory. And it's not just hope as wishful thinking, it's a guarantee because he will never abandon you. And if he is in you, he will make you like him. And so Paul says, this is the great mystery, that sinner though you are, God loves you and he will not abandon you if you trust him. This is simple. He will not abandon us. And this is, I don't know if there's a better, is there a better, better news than that? And this is the message then. So the first thing that God gives us as a gift, how he loves us, is with the gospel. 
the message. And this is why everything I ever say up here ought to point to Christ, and you're going to see in a minute why even more. Everything you do ought to be anchored in the fact that he is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? First thing. So he loves us through the, through the, the actual gospel. But he also loves us through people. And here I have to have a disclaimer because I'm going to talk a lot about Paul as he serves as a preacher and as a pastor. And it's going to sound like I'm saying, I am your gift. But bear with me. I have to do this because Paul says it. So when Paul speaks here about, um, about his ministry, like I said, he often usually speaks about himself only when he is trying to defend himself. But here in verse 24, 25, he says this, I labor and I suffer. Why? For the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, a deacon, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And so what Paul is saying is he was plucked out of the world to serve you. And so Paul is literally a sign of how God loves you because he gives you Paul. And not just that, and this is where I have to be careful, he gives you pastors, and me pastors. He gives us preachers, he gives us missionaries, he gives us evangelists, he gives us people whose sole job is to come out of the world, well, uh, called out of the world in one regard, but then thrust back into it with this point number one, with this message. And so Paul is saying, he loves, one of the, his primary calling, first and foremost, is he is for you, and he suffers for you. And we're going to talk at the last point more about that. So Paul's saying he is called to serve the church first and foremost through proclamation, through preaching the gospel. Now, and this is, this is one of the other mysteries if you want to use this language. Why does God do it this way? Like, we know people can become Christians through other means. We know people who have had uh, dreams and visions. We hear about this in Iran and places where they have no way of ever heard, having heard the gospel and yet Christ appears to them. So why doesn't he always do that? Why does he instead, by and large, the history of the church, decide that, no, the way I'm going to primarily tell people about me and save them and reveal those who are saved is I'm going to send people. I'm going to make certain folks in all my church believers who are going to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel, and that's the way I'm going to choose to reveal myself to people, through the preaching of broken people. Why does he do it? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, but he does. And Paul is saying he's one of them. He's one of these many, and he, of course, he loves Epaphras, which he keeps saying throughout the book, uh, the letter. But he says, this is it. I have, he, he, and this, he's trying to deepen their appreciation, not of him, when he says, he's not boasting about how wonderful he is. He, what he is doing is he is instead saying, do you understand how God loves you? Because he's even willing to pull a, a, a sinner like Paul out of the world and allow him to not just be a warden and a carrier of this message, but somebody who's willing to die to get you the message you would otherwise never hear. You only exist as Christians, all of us, because people like Paul that God pulled out of the world. And so Paul is a gift to us. That's how God loves us, through a lot of ways. But one of them is preachers and pastors. And that's where I'm be careful. I'm not saying, love me, I'm a gift. That's not what I'm saying. But like it or not, not only is that important for you to understand how God loves you that way, but it's important for people like me to see that I am simply called out of the world to do this. It's my sole job. I don't care if I toil in anonymity. I don't care if I make millions. I hope, Lord willing, all, not that I make millions. I mean, Lord willing that I don't ever care that I don't make millions. Um, 
That's not the goal. The goal is I need to remember that I am plucked out of the world to serve God, first and foremost. And I do it in the same way Paul says. He tells us exactly what he does and what it costs him. So what he does, first he proclaims. He says, and we'll go in the order of verse 28. I proclaim him. Him we proclaim, he says. So in other words, and in fact, the word proclaim there is the word cantangelo, angelo, which means angel, which means messenger. So he sees himself as a messenger with a message, which is what we talked about at first. So the first thing he does as a gift to you, God sends him as to you and I to be a messenger of something, which is Christ, which is why, and this is, I'm not perfect, none of us are perfect, but do you understand why I don't let certain people speak at church on Sunday? And it's only speaking here because Sunday morning is for, the, for the, 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 the preaching of the Word of God. And so if a missionary is visiting, and I love the missionaries, we allow them to share, but I don't often have them preach unless they're going to preach the gospel and not just tell them about how things are going in their ministry. That's not because I have a problem with what they're doing, quite the opposite. But the morning is for Christ and Christ alone to be glorified, first and foremost. So I'm not in any way knocking, don't be offended if you're a missionary and I say you're not going to preach it's not, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to hoard the pulpit. Christ and Christ alone is who we proclaim. And I'm not saying the missionaries don't. They do often. But I don't want to muddy that. I don't want to spill that over. Sunday morning's about Christ first. So, we proclaim. Second thing he says is, we warn everyone. And here's the word admonish. And this is very simple, right? If you're, if you're in the, in the uh, desert and you know where there's an oasis and you see some str- struggling people dying and struggling in the, in the desert... You don't merely help them by proclaiming, by saying, oasis over there. What you do is you say, there's an oasis over there. Remember that. Keep your eye on it. But on your way, you're going to encounter quicksand, which, by the way, when I was a kid, I thought quicksand was everywhere. Every show made it sound like quicksand was just waiting. Anyway, I was shocked as an adult to realize how little quicksand really is a threat to my life. Um, Sorry, (laughs) side note. So, as... The reason he puts warning in there is it's not just that the point to Christ, it's that you have to point to him, but then say, as you attempt to go, there's going to be quicksand, there's going to be bandits on the road, there's going to be pitfalls, and if you're not careful, you'll never get there. You are in trouble, you're in danger. If you're going to get to the oasis, here's how you're going to do it. And so, pastors and Paul comes warning people. They're often very frank, and this is why that costs them so much often. They have to tell you, you're a sinner, and you don't like that. No one likes it. Paul doesn't like it either. I don't like it. And yet, we have to do it. So Paul says that's one of the gifts God gives you as a preacher who tells you who Christ is and what he's done, but then warns you that you are on the wrong side of him. Right? So that's another thing. Second, third thing, he says, is teach. It's interesting that he adds this word, uh, uh, which is um, uh, didaco, which is didactic from teaching. Proclaim and teach are different things, and yet they're part of the same. The reason preaching must be teaching is because first, the Bible says so. So a preacher who only points to Christ and never pushes you deeper in the text is not entirely fulfilling his calling, I don't think. And so there's a need to point you to Christ, but to present you, as Paul's going to say, the fourth part, is present you as mature before Christ, which means a teacher and a pastor must tell you what the text means to your life and the implications for it, because he's not just trying to, prote- to present a gospel message. He's trying, I'm accountable for presenting you mature. So it's my job to not just teach properly, if I can, but to offer other classes, have coffees, be prayer- praying for you, giving you opportunities to serve where I can, and pressing all of us, if possible, 
so that you grow in your faith. And that requires deeper teaching at times, not just surface level. And it also requires hard work and pushing. Have you ever grown in anything that you didn't feel frustrated with? No, of course not. It's always harder work. And so Paul says this is what he does primarily. He proclaims, warns, teaches, and presents that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He is accountable for your maturity and my maturity. And we are accountable, I am, for yours and so on, as you are for your children and, and such. So it's not just that as a gift. What a gift that is, right? That God sends us people like this, wise women and men who have come and teach us and tell us who Christ is. But then, he then says, but it costs a lot. And here's even deepening the appreciation of especially guys like Paul, because he says he's suffering for your sake. Now, I have to address this, though you can talk more in your groups, but it's that very puzzling statement that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's puzzled. Just so you know, there's no consensus as to what Paul's talking about here. But what we do know is this. When he says he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he is not and cannot be saying Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough, so I am topping it off because it's not enough. Right? I'm, I'm helping redeem you by my, my suffering. It's not what he's saying. Instead, it looks like, if you look at where we pre- I preached on this, but Revelation 6, 9 to 11, there's a martyrs that are crying out to God. And they cry out and say, how long until you come and, bring, and judge this rotten world? And God's response is, hold on, the right number have not suffered yet. And that's really bizarre. There's no explanation there. But what it seems like maybe Paul is doing here, though we're not sure, it seems like Paul's saying, for whatever reason and whatever that number is, God seems to have set up some sort of a quota. That there's a point at which he's not going to be able to take the suffering of his elect and his church any longer. And when that time comes, he's going to intervene. And Paul seems like he may be believing that and says, if there is a quota of suffering, I am going to soak up as much of it for you as I can. So that I'll raise that bar. The more I suffer, the less you have to suffer. And God has given him a spirit to, to, to endure it. So Paul seems to be suggesting he is hastening the return of Christ by suffering. Interesting. Talk about that amongst yourselves. That's not relevant anymore to what we're going to talk about. But I knew I had to say it or else somebody would email me. Because um, it's an important, it's a, it's a bizarre passage, right? So I, I get that. But, so what Paul is, we do know he is saying 100% is this. He suffers for the church. He, he's in prison while he's writing this. He knows he's literally in jail because he's preaching, preaching the gospel. And the reason he's preaching the gospel is because you had not heard it. And so he is suffering for your sake so you can hear about God and what he has done for you so you can be saved. He has to be in prison. And so he says, I suffer on your behalf. That's what he means. And every pastor and preacher that has ever been around you, depending on, we're all different contexts. We don't suffer like Paul here. But I make, make, as a guy who has pastored for a while, I assure you, you always take a beating for preaching the gospel. Always. Inside the church, outside the church, in some way. Not like Paul, I'm, let's not belate on that, suggesting there's any you know, prison time in my future, I don't know. Um, but everyone who's called to preach the gospel will run afoul of this world. They will. And you all will as well. So Paul, in doing this, is saying, the message and the messenger are, are ways that God loves you. He loves you by sending you people who are willing to take a beating for your sake and for my sake as well. Excuse me, for, as well. And so, how does God love us? Through the gospel message, through the messengers he calls, and lastly, his might. Now, Paul is very, very direct here. He says this power, there is something in this message 
that allows him to be the kind of messenger and the kind of Christian who suffers and works differently than the rest of the world. He toils and he suffers differently. And when he's talking about this, let me say this first thing. He says he rejoices in suffering. Now, this has been misused, right? The early church and many folks since have thought, um, well, I have to take a beating because the more I am hurt, the more I glorify Christ. Well, that's not not what Paul's saying. He's not saying you should be happy. Christ on the cross isn't there hanging, saying, praise the Lord, what a great time. That's not what he's saying. There's mourning and there's weeping amidst suffering for the gospel. But what Paul is getting at is that he can, in, he can even rejoice in the darkest times of his suffering because of two primary things. The first one is future glory. Because he knows that he is not meant to call down and attain glory here and now, but that it's a future glory, which is literally what Paul says, it's the hope of a future glory, then that means his suffering now does not, does not indicate Christ's pleasure or displeasure with him. Right? Often we think if I'm suffering, it's because God has got a problem with me. Uh, that's not biblical. Paul's very clear about this. Your suffering is not because God hates you or is punishing you. He's doing it, if you're a Christian, because you're, he's disciplining you, because he loves you. And so the first thing he said, he said, you know, because it's the hope of future glory, I can suffer now knowing that my reward is not now. And so I don't have to, to get everything here. I don't have to be wealthy here. I don't have to have all these experiences here. I don't have to have perfect anything here because there's a future hope which allows him to give himself to the ministry of the word for you and I. So the, that's the first thing he does. The second thing is he knows he's working for God. He's so confident that his calling from God that he can respond with abandon and almost look reckless in what he does and go into situations that you and I would not. And so he rejoices in suffering in his persecution for that. But I have to do another caveat, and I've done this a few times already in this series, of... of what is Christian suffering? Because some will say, well, suffering for Christians should only be persecution, never illness. That's not accurate at all. Now, I'll use uh, N.T. Wright as a biblical scholar. Here's what he has to say uh, about this passage, no less. But all Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another. If not outwardly, then inwardly, through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness, the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibilities for a family or a church, the constant doubts and uncertainties which accompany the obedience of faith and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, taken up as they are within the call to follow Christ. And what Wright is saying is you don't have to be Paul or a pastor to suffer. Suffering of a Christian is not merely persecution. You will suffer in this world simply by being a Christian even if you never get persecuted, and this is why. When you lose a job, uh, which you will if you haven't, or you'll retire and you'll lose all meaning, or your kids leave you, or your kids p pass away, Lord forbid, anything that happens to you in this life will happen to everybody in the world, right? Christians don't suffer less. The difference is we have to suffer differently, which means that your faith must speak to the worst of sufferings. When you do get sick and God does not heal you, it's not because you don't have faith, but what you are asked to do in it is to endure faithfully. And so your very faith will demand that you respond to situations in a way that's going to sometimes increase your suffering. When you get fired because someone has slandered you, don't you want to punch them in the face? But you can't. And so you have to suffer knowing, I have to forgive this scoundrel? And you see, even those everything, the moment you become a Christian, life becomes suffering. Because you have to deal with things differently. And so all of life, becomes a way of living out your faith and suffering. That's what N.T. Wright 
excuse me, N.T. Wright is saying. And yet this hope of glory, this hope of glory was strong enough, and I, saw, I spoke about this on Easter, to lead Christians to not only endure pain and suffering, but to do it triumphantly and to thrive in it. And N.T. Wright will go on and say, in fact, one of the reasons you and I can rejoice, though it's very tough, is because the very fact that we're suffering indicates that he was telling the truth. If you are suffering, it's because the old things are passing away and the new is coming, which means you're suffering like he said he would, and although it's painful, you can actually rejoice and say, it stinks, but he said it would happen, so it must be true that it won't be my final destiny. And so you can even rejoice in that moment. And in the early church, in the, about 200 years or so after Christ, there was uh, plagues that ran through Rome. And I talked about this, so I'm going to quote it again, even though I did it on Easter, because it's worth it. Um, and during these plagues, there's all sorts of correspondence between people. And one of them is a Christian, a man named Dionysius. And here's what he says. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. And so in the early church, you have Christians who are going into the homes of people who are dying with the plague. For some reason, everybody else is leaving Rome, but the Christians, a number of them stayed, probably partly because they had no money, they couldn't flee, but then also because they felt a need to love their neighbors. So they went and they cared for them, bringing upon themselves the sickness of their neighbors in identifying with the suffering of their neighbor, though they were not, were not suffering themselves, they were acting like Christ. And by taking on their sickness in trying to help them, they modeled Christ for the world. And they did that because they had a hope of glory. Glory is not something you yank down and take for your, this world. If it was, Paul wouldn't have to say in Romans 8.23 that we are awaiting a future glory, right? It's not about now, let's, let's, let's call down the resurrected body now. That's not what it's about, a perfect body. It's about using the hope we have of a future glory to serve like Christ here and now. And Paul says he could do this. He could suffer because of that entirely. Lastly, he says about his work. He closes this passage and says he doesn't just suffer differently, but, he's, but his work, he says, he, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so much happening here. Here we have this paradox. Who's working? Is it Paul or is it God? Who gets the credit? Is it Paul or is it God? What's happening? How does Paul serve? And the language helps. I don't always love, I told you, I like the Greek and the Hebrew. Sometimes it's helpful, and here it may. When he says he, labor, he toils, it's the word labor, which is pretty straightforward. He works for the gospel. His calling, he does it. But then it says he struggles, and that is the word uh, agonizomai, which is where we get the word agony from, meaning Paul agonizes, right? He works in such a way, and he uses that language about running a race a lot, right? So he, he strains, he gives everything, meaning he works a lot harder than our unions will allow us, or our culture today, it says, you need to self-care, love yourself. Listen, there's a, there's a degree of where you, can't, you don't want to burn out, However, burnout isn't something you see in Scripture for the people of God, not because we're called to work endlessly. Quite the opposite you're going to see. But because Paul is saying, how do I toil? I give everything I can, but because I'm giving it out of the store of Christ's energy, I'm not running out. You will run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. And this is that great paradox. You and I are called to give everything. Everything. 
I push, I know I, I, the staff I can sometimes bother. I know people often, I mean, even today, a wonderful person came and said, are you not, you're not getting burned out, are you, Carl? Because I do a lot. And I get that. And I, I'm grateful. Please continue to pray for that. I tell you, I will work only 40 hours a week for you, roughly. But I will give you 40 hours. Like, I will die of 40 hours. My wife knows it. I will spend all 40 hours actually working really hard, and so will the staff. And that is because I am not too concerned that I'm going to be burned out for working 40 hours. More than that, I, get, I may get worried. I have a wife who holds me accountable very well, which is good. But we're called to spend everything. You're not called to get into heaven with a full gas tank. right? But, but to say, I spent, I strove, I gave it all. And yet, he says, but look at the wonderful wording is even more wonderful in the Greek. It says, with all his energy that he is energizing within me. It's the same word, both times, not powerfully. Um, and what he's saying is, here's the great irony. I work and I give everything, but because I am drawing on someone else's energy, namely God's, I can do it without fainting. I can do it because it's not my energy. And this is why some of us are, great, are happy enough to have jobs that we love. And you can work and you're like, okay, I have to take a break because it's healthy, but I love my job. I never get tired of it. And if you're in a job that doesn't make you feel that way, can I tell you this? Come to the faith and work class because it's probably not the job that's the problem. It's you. Do we understand the work that God has called us for and the place? Do we know that we are loved in this world by God through the milkman, through the garbage man, through the bus driver, through the mom who teaches us how to read, though we get, never, ever thank her? Do we know that our work has a key place in the world? And this truth, this hope of glory, allows Paul to not just be in Christians should be the very best workers, but we should also be the very best resters. We should be the best workers because we strive, because we know we are doing God's work to bring his glory into the world. But we should also be really good at resting because we know that he's never going to abandon us. It's his work and he's coming back to claim it, which means I can actually take a break and not answer my phone because I can believe the world will spin without Carl. And the, every, the reason we have to rest is it forces us to acknowledge that God will accomplish his good work. You won't on your own. And so we ought to be the people who strive but also rest really well. And we disconnect, we disconnect. And this is the great paradox we find there. These are the way, God's, this is the way God loves us. Through this power he gives us to be the messengers he has called us to be of this great message. And so if you're a Christian, thank God that you have the message of salvation, you've been saved. Thank God that he sent preachers and teachers and wonderful people around you to present you mature. And thank God that he gives you a calling in this world and the power to accomplish it and the skills to do it. If you're not a Christian, then I say the mystery is solved for your work. You've wondered why you've worked your whole life, why you've struggled, and you feel like there's a better world out there. Things should be better. I should enjoy my work and my life better, and I'm not. That isn't a mystery that's meant to be unresolved. It's been resolved in Christ. And Christ alone, you see, until Christ is in you, you will have no peace with him or with your work. But the moment you have peace with God, which requires you repent, and confess that you've been serving yourself all along, and then you trust him to be your salvation, when there is peace with him and he is in you, then you can then begin to be a peacemaker in the world through your work and through all that you do. Do this. Repent and believe, and you will find that you become a person who can rejoice in suffering, but also work with everything and rest with real rest. Let's pray.